This is a chapter that will be especially interesting for parents <laughs> wondering about their children's examinations for students trying to get through certain things. But really it's for all of us because it has nothing to do with exams or universities. It has to do with the fact that there are things in our lives that aren't our first love or even our dharma, but they are our karma, things that we have to do anyway, things we have to work through, responsibilities, you know, things that um, we've attracted in this particular lifetime, not just to learn from, but to push through almost, while we're able to tune into these greater realities that we aspire towards. And for Yogananda, that took the form of his studies. It wasn't something that, from a young age, it wasn't he was not interested in it because, like most of us, we don't want to put out energy or that we dislike hard work. He wasn't interested because he was so clear on what he did want. And he wanted God and he felt everything else that did not support his search for God, he wanted to get rid of. But his own guru then says, this is going to be very important for you because in later in life, when you go to America, this degree, people will kind of respect the fact that you have a degree because over there, a practical education is just as important as a spiritual one. And so, let's see from our own perspectives, what is it that we try to avoid? What is it that we would prefer not to do? And see if there are ways we can use our, our spiritual path as helping us to not only go through that, but to come out really, really more powerfully than when we went in. You ignore your textbooks as textbook assignments in philosophy. No doubt you are depending on an unlaborious intuition to get you through the examinations. But unless you apply yourself in a more scholarly manner, I shall see to it that you don't pass this course. Professor D.C. Ghoshal of Serampur College was addressing me sternly. If I failed to pass his final written classroom test, I would be ineligible to take the conclusive examinations. These are formulated by the faculty of Calcutta University. A student in Indian universities who is unsuccessful in one subject in the AB finals must be examined anew in all his subjects the following year. My instructors at Sirampur College usually treated me with kindness not untinged by an amused tolerance. Mukunda is a bit overdrunk with religion. Thus summing me up, they tactfully spared me the embarrassment of answering classroom questions. They trusted the final written tests to eliminate me from the list of AB candidates. The judgment passed by my fellow students was expressed in their nickname for me, Mad Monk. So here we are, this is the setting, examinations are about to come, everyone knows <laughs> Yogananda oh, is not going, he's like, well, let's not even bother with him, you know, automatically the examinations will eliminate him, you know, it's not even, it's not even worth the effort to try to get him to learn or to study, so everybody had given up on him to a certain degree and they just tolerated the fact that he's around because they knew where his love, uh, you know, lay and that that's where he wanted to be. Mad Monk was the name, the nickname they gave him. I took an ingenious step to nullify Professor Ghoshal's threat to me of failure in philosophy. 
When the results of the final tests were about to be publicly announced, I asked a classmate to accompany me to the professor's study. Come along, I want a witness, I told my companion. I shall be very much disappointed if I have not succeeded in outwitting the instructor. So, of course, Yogananda was no less in anything that he did. He always had God on his side. So, in fact, his intuition always did serve him, even in things which did require a scholarly understanding of the world. Yogananda used his intuition to help kind of supplement that which he was not able to draw directly from worldly knowledge. Professor Ghoshal shook his head after I had inquired what rating he had given my paper. You are not among those who have passed, he said in triumph. He hunted through a large pile on his desk. Your paper isn't here at all. You have failed in any case through non-appearance at the examination. I chuckled. Sir, I was there. May I look through the stack myself? The professor nonplussed gave his permission. I quickly found my paper, where I had carefully omitted any identification mark except my roll call number. <laughs> Unwarned by the red flag of my name, the instructor had given a high rating to my answers, even though they were unembellished by textbook quotations. How clever, isn't it? <laughs> Yogananda knew that sometimes life has like a, or people have a preconceived idea about us and you know, so they start treating us in a certain way. In this particular case, this professor just assumed that Yogananda doesn't know what he's doing, he just knew anything he will write won't be the correct form, won't be the appropriate textbook answers. So somehow when we condition our minds already, we're going to look through whatever it is in this particular case, an examination, and see it from that perspective and already have a judgment related to that. So Yogananda, in his, you know, great intuitive ability, kind of withdrew any, uh, any opportunity for the professor to create that judgment, that preconceived, you know, oh, this is Mukunda, must be all wrong, and would have then read his answers from already that understanding and perspective. And he just removed any identification marks. Yeah. <laughs> so the professor didn't know whose paper he was reading and unburdened by any, you know, kind of pre-created judgment. He just looked at it afresh, mm -hmm. anew. So, of course, it's a great lesson for us always to every time, you know, an action, a word, uh, people in our lives, what they do, how they behave, to give them, you know, that benefit of the doubt to always look at everything they do anew and afresh. Swami Kriyananda, uh, this is Nas, Asha Naya Swami who tells this story. She said when she was his uh, personal secretary and personal assistant, she said every morning that she came, you know, to, to work to his house, she said Swami would give her like this little astonished look to say, oh, you're still interested in coming because every day, he would offer everything of that day back to God and then see whatever God gives him back. He never assumed just because she's my secretary, that's her official job, therefore she must and will show up every day. Every day she showed up for work, for him it was like, oh wow, you came again. You know, because he never assumed, took for granted or just 
oh yeah, this is who you are, this is how you've always been, you've showed up 50 times, therefore of course you'll show up the 51st time. No, he was just always open for life to be different, for a person to be in a different mood, or for God to try to bring a completely different truth through a certain situation. And that takes a lot of effort from our part, doesn't it? To not look at somebody from whatever little impression we've already created. So of course you've got the professor's side of it where <laughs> that must have been a lesson for him because unburdened by Yogananda's name, he in fact gave him a very, very high rating even though none of the answers were what the expected or the usual answers should be. But had Mukunda's name been there, it would have been a completely different situation. I would like to reinforce that point because here is just like a mini exchange between Yogananda, this professor, that perhaps was a relationship only of a couple of years or perhaps only one year. But what about the people we are living with for years? And we have assumed they are the way they are and they cannot be changed. And it may be true, you know, maybe in this lifetime they won't be able to change except one or two tendencies, you know, at most. But still, we should project in them, if nothing else, an energetic thought, a vibrational thought where they feel we are supporting a change in their personality, a change in their thought patterns, where, where they, where we create an energetic environment where they feel they can change if they wish to do so. Because sometimes we don't allow that, especially those people that we have created a preconception of, oh, this is how he's going to behave, or this is what he's going to do, or if I do it in this way because this is the only way he or she likes. And we box people and eventually we box ourselves and our relationships in only those particular exchange of energy. So I think it's going to be crucial for us if we want to keep our relationships um, and our expectations, not only about our people, other people, but about our own growth, always fresh and ready to change and ready to do the same things we do, but differently and better and more joyful and more creatively. So the person that you are living with can feel that vibrant energy and enthusiasm and he will join you in your efforts and you will be surprised that by doing what you are doing already every day by doing it more creatively more different more uniquely you are already creating a space a psychological space for the other person to change too so it's an art of just, you know, improving our relationships. And don't assume that the other person needs to do all the job. In fact, the responsibility, the more we become aware of the potential changes that we can have within ourselves, the more responsible we should feel for living our lives again, more creatively, and, and every day should be a new opportunity to do those things that I'm already doing differently. And I think that's also the secret of keeping the spiritual life yeah. um, alive because this is a long-term 
uh, process and this is not just you know a couple of years that you are joining the path and you are learning to meditate and your meditations are improving i mean this is a lifetimes you know of keeping your soul yearning for uniting yourself for god so how are you going to feed that thirst how are you going to keep that yearning ever new fresh and alive so yes the kind of creativity that yoganandaji had to put in order to you know trick his professor and for him also to show him that we cannot box um, put people in yeah into boxes i love this over here there is this little footnote from yogananda that says i must do professor goshal the justice of admitting that the strange relationships between us strange relationship between us was not due to any fault of his but solely to my absences from classes and inattention to them professor goshal was and is a remarkable orator with vast philosophical knowledge in later years <laughs> we came to a cordial understanding so of course yogananda ji doesn't want us to kind of believe yeah. that somehow this was a bad guy and you know, because this is how we think of life right if i am right so therefore everybody else must be wrong or if i think i like something or i want to do something then anybody who sees it differently is the bad guy here is the villain here but nobody's the villain in your life nobody's trying to hurt you or upset you or you know kind of stop you from the growth that you're seeking they have their reasons they have their own versions of life that they're living you know professor goshal could only see life in a particular way yogananda perhaps came into his life to even open up a little bit more of that perception perhaps but if that doesn't happen that just doesn't happen and i love how yogananda was on the other hand you've got you know professor goshal's lesson hopefully but you've got yogananda how he's like how do we trick our karma <laughs> mm-hmm. you know because karma is going to be there he couldn't just say yo oh, you know i i found a way where i just don't have to give any exams any ever again no he he had to go through all these things he couldn't run away from it but he learned that karma responds to you know the ego it's like as long as that's what swami ji said on the way to freedom why we aim for the state called jivan mukta which is the state where you get you know you become free while you're still living that's not a state where all your karma has been neutralized that is a state only where where the sense of i has gotten completely extinguished you still have a lot of your past karma to work out but never again will you have any more karma that you will ever create because it's that i around which karma kind of has attaches itself the moment that i disappears karma itself has nothing to latch on to it will just flow through you without leaving even a slight kind of ripple in your consciousness and so yogananda kind of like by not putting any identifying marks what does that mean he did not even identify with his own paper with the work that he does by letting god flow through you completely where there is no identity of your ego involved karma cannot touch you and that's an amazing lesson for us to learn and he's doing it in this really fun you know kind of you wouldn't even think of it as a lesson taking place but by omitting any identifiable marks which is for us in everything we do we put our identity 
We want people to know I did this, I saw this, I said this. Oh, I tricked Professor Goshal. But for Yogananda, he realized as long as there is an I, there's the karma that is yours is going to have to kind of affect you. Moment you remove the I, moment there's no identifiable marks, which means moment is just God flowing through you, then nothing can touch you. And so you see both sides of the game being played. Yogananda using his Guru's teachings to even use in something as practical, as mundane, as boring and irritating as an exam. To just say, what if I withdraw any sense of I in this process? Boom. Immediately that process clears up. Seeing through my trick, he now thundered, Professor Ghoshal, this is sheer brazen luck. He added, hopefully, you are sure to fail the AB finals. I mean, there was really a, a deep karma between both of them. I mean, you could see that there was this kind of fight to see who would win in this because Professor was really determined to, to prove, to show him all the way, all the way along that, you know, Yogananda just had to pay, you know, for not showing up and he had to pay that debt. And you, you just can't see, I mean, it's so interesting to see that, you know, fight between both of them. For the tests in my other subjects, I received some coaching, particularly from my dear friend and cousin, Prabhas Chandra Ghosh. I staggered painfully, but successfully, <laughs> with the lowest possible passing marks <laughs> through all my final tests. So interestingly, the one subject where like the professor had like a thing for him, only in that Yogananda kind of got the highest marks, got a great rating, you know, put out the energy to both show the professor to prove to himself that this is a karma he can overcome, where everything else was concerned, where there wasn't any major karma, where he didn't feel like, you know, I'm the best at anything I do. He just said, all right, it's not so important to me. And that's what we also have to pick and choose our battles. This is not that important. I'm, I'm okay to just you know, skate through here. But in some of these cases, no, I'm going to put a little bit more energy. I'm going to do something more. This karma I have to overcome. Mm -hmm. But these karmas, if I engage in them too much, I might just activate them more than I need to. So let me just kind of let this one slide by. Now, after four years of college, I was eligible to sit for the AB examinations. Nevertheless, I hardly expected to avail myself of the privilege. The Serampore College finals were child's play compared to the stiff ones that would be set by Calcutta University for the AB degree. My almost daily visits to Sri Yukteswar had left me little time to enter the college halls. There it was my, there it was my presence rather than my absence that brought forth ejaculations of amazement from my classmates. My customary routine was to set out on my bicycle about 9.30 in the morning. In one hand, I would carry an offering for my guru, a few flowers from my garden. Greeting me affably, master would invite me to lunch. <laughs> I invariably accepted with alacrity, glad to banish the thought of college for the day. So this is his usual day. In the morning, rather than going to college, he would go to his guru, you know, only to offer some flowers, something at his guru's feet. 
but then the guru would say, why don't you stay for lunch? And then of course, Yogananda would say, very happily, very happy to banish the thought of college. After hours with Sri Yukteswar, listening to his incomparable flow of wisdom or helping with ashram duties, I would reluctantly depart around midnight for the Panthi boarding house. Occasionally, I stayed all night with my guru, so happily engrossed in his conversation that I scarcely noticed when darkness changed into dawn. One night, about 11 o'clock, as I was putting on my shoes in preparation for the ride to the boarding house, Master questioned me gravely, When do your AB examinations start? Five days hence, sir. I hope you are in readiness for them. Transfixed with alarm, I held one shoe in the air. <laughs> Sir, I protested, you know how my days have been passed with you rather than with the professors. How can I enact a farce by appearing for those difficult finals? Sri Yukteswar's eyes were turned piercingly on mine. You must appear. His tone was coldly preemptory. We should not give cause for your father and other relatives to criticize your preference for ashram life. Just promise me that you will be present for the examinations. Answer them the best way you can. Uncontrollable tears were coursing down my face. I felt that Master's command was unreasonable and that his interest was, to say the least, belated. I will appear if you wish it, I said amidst sobs, but no time remains for proper preparation. Under my breath, I muttered, I will fill up the sheets with your teachings in answer to the questions. So of course, now you've got this little exchange between guru and disciple, the same exchange we have with life every day, where life expects us to do something and we rebel and we say, no, we don't want to do this. I have not prepared, I don't feel like it, I don't feel so good, perhaps I have a fever, <laughs> you know, whatever excuse we can come up with, we just, you know, there are just certain things we don't want to deal with, there are just certain things we decide and even though Yogananda's goal was so clear for God, did it mean that it did not include all these other things? What is our desire for God? What is our desire for anything, in fact? And how do you distinguish and separate one desire from all other karma and dharma that follows us as part of it. And Sri Yukteswar was very clear. He knew for a fact, not just because as we said, he knew Yogananda will need to go to the West and this will be something that will support him. But also, he didn't want his father, his relatives, who for so long have been as it is, you know, fanning the flames of, the, of criticism and saying, you know, you're always doing this and you're completely neglecting, you see now that you did this. And he didn't want that also to enter into Yogananda's life because he wanted Yogananda to have a clean break from family karma. Sometimes otherwise these things, they just follow us for too long. Years go by and you know, you're still that same record of you see, you didn't. And he just wanted to show Yogananda's family as well that look at it, he did it. There was no excuse for him just because he was being spiritual, that he's unable to function fully in this world. But now that he's done it, now that he's proved himself, you know, now he can really 
focus on what it is that he truly wants in life. And so each of us have to tune into that in our lives. We're not islands. Our karma and desires are not singular in the fact that they don't kind of trans transect and interconnect with many other karma, karmas and dharmas that are playing out simultaneously. And we have to tune into all of that, even as we keep our minds singularly on the goal. I was thinking here that so many times we use the excuse of, oh, I went to the ashram for an hour and a half and I couldn't do this other thing. <clears throat> or I was meditating for perhaps two hours and then I couldn't fulfill that. But, but what Yogananda here is trying to say is that I invested every single hour of every single day in my Guru's ashram. I was fully present with him. I was fulfilling all the duties at the ashram. My energy was high. I would have spent some time the, all, the whole night talking to my Guru, meditating with him. I mean, this is the kind of invested energy that could only, only be justified why he couldn't pass his exams or why he was expelled or he was, you know, absent from those classes. And sometimes we try to just justify, you know, our actions because we were doing this little thing on the spiritual path. I mean, only when we achieve that kind of commitment to the path of dedication, when we know that our 100% energy has been dedicated to God and we were so busy serving him at our Guru Sajam and doing everything that was asked of us, only then we can even utter these words even to God. You know, I just couldn't fulfill this because I was fulfilling, I was giving my life to you, to my Guru's mission. And I, and I really like this section because he describes exactly the life of a devotee who is giving his life to God. I mean, only because I was giving my 100% to my Guru's work, I couldn't do this other Dharma. So that's one aspect that I think it's important for us every time we are trying to justify an action that we that it should have been fulfilled and we didn't why was the reason that we didn't do that it was because we were fulfilling a higher dharma or because we were just you know wasting our time over time and calling that waste of time something really important i mean this the ego is so subtle so don't play tricks with your own, I mean, don't try to justify your actions if, if they don't deserve to be justified. And secondly, I love here, no, when he says, you just, you shouldn't give your, your family, you know, the relatives to uh, criticize your ashram life. And I think Sri Yudeshwar wanted to let Yogananda understand that he should always share the teachings by he becoming a perfect example of what it means to live a life dedicated to God, which is a life of perfect balance. 
where you fulfill your spiritual duties, where your mind is constantly in God, and yet you are fulfilling whatever God is asking of you. So it's important for us to, to make sure that no matter how dedicated we are in our search for God, we balance our lives and we prove to our family that we can succeed in both areas of our lives. And only then they will appreciate and they will understand. And in fact, they will encourage you to keep doing that because they are seeing that you are able to, to bring those two in perfect harmony and they don't feel threatened. Many people, especially some of our families, criticize us not because, you know, anything, but because they feel threatened. They feel that you are going to abandon them or you are not going to satisfy certain needs that they still um, feel and they still expect for you to fulfill. So find that perfect balance where you can explain to your family by your actions that you can indeed uh, lead this life dedicated to God. This reminds me of when I first moved to the ashram, I just finished college and I moved to the ashram and my mother was, you know, she was very happy for me because she knew this is what I want about my father. We were very silently disappointed and rightly so because, you know, you're just out of college. Obviously, he's assuming I'm trying to avoid responsibilities and this is some sort of, you know, he's going into the ashram. But I remember the first time I came home after several months and living in the ashram, I had learned so much. You know, I mean, I was doing the accounting back then. There was hardly anybody. So, you know, everything fell on a few of us. You know, I'd learned plumbing. I'd learned how to be an electrician. I'd, you know, figured out how to cons do construction work. I was doing accounting. I mean, I'd learned so many things in the few months that I was living at the ashram that my parents had probably seen me learn in my entire life. And that was the first time my father realized, my goodness, this guy is actually gaining so much more than he would have gained if he had done that one job and would have woke up in the morning and just gone to office in the whole day, come back and done that, you know, with no joy, with no excitement, with no enthusiasm, with no real skill, except to be able to perhaps sit in front of a computer for a little while. So it really shifted a lot. And I didn't have to explain to him. I didn't have to say, you see, God, living for God is this way and living for God is that way. He just saw it the way he could, which is, wow, my son has become so practically capable <laughs> that I never would have thought he would be because none of us are, especially in India. I mean, we just live a life of... <laughs> complete sloth at times because we have so many people to do so much for us. So that's an interesting learning also to have is to be able to show to those around you that what you're gaining is not just on the spiritual level, but it's a very practical reality as well that you gain when you dedicate some your life to something that you love deeply. Here we now where are we? When I entered the hermitage the following day at my usual hour, I presented my bouquet with a certain mournful solemnity. Sri Yukteswar <laughs> laughed at my woebegone air. <laughs> I love that word. Mukunda, has the Lord ever failed you at an examination or elsewhere? 
No, sir, I responded warmly. Grateful memories came in a river, in a revivifyingly, in a revivifying flood. Not laziness. This is a very powerful sentence here, and Narayani touched on it, but not laziness, but a burning zeal for God has prevented you from seeking college honors. That's a very, very important line here. Not laziness, but a burning zeal for God has prevented you from seeking college honors. My Guru said kindly, after a silence, he quoted, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And these are words from Christ in the Bible. Now he would say to his disciples, if you seek God first, then everything else also gets added on to you. Whether it's passing an examination, whether it's being able to uh, sustain a livelihood and a family, whether it is being able to even fulfill your deepest desires that you hold. But if you put those desires momentarily aside, put them secondary to the seeking of God, in that flow of that upward you know, flow of energy that is required to be generated to receive God, all that also gets lifted up. All that also gets fulfilled. So many of the things I would have loved when I was younger, when we, anybody's young, you know, oh, I want to travel the world and I want to do this and I want to see this and I want to have, you know, this kind of a lifestyle. All these things have been fulfilled just by having given my life to God. We now travel a lot, we go you know, to these beautiful places, we have amazing friends, we live in this amazing house which we would never be able to afford even if I was working 24 hours a day at an office somewhere. I mean, it's just, God's amazing. The Guru is amazing in His ability to know what you want, what you need and to include that in your search for God. But it can't be the hidden agenda or the motive. It has to be very clear. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things, all these things shall be added unto you. And this is something that we don't need to make a vow like from today onwards, even though we should, but this can be applied every day with our morning meditations. Like we are already affirming Every day, I will not start my day until I have my first contact with the divine. And this is almost like a, already an affirmation you are setting into motion every single day. I'm not going to do anything at home. I'm not going to interact with anyone. I'm not going to give myself to anyone until I give myself first to God through my meditation and if that means that your day starts very early because your children your mother the man's at home wake up even earlier so you can give yourself at least half an hour 45 minutes an hour concentrating completely offering your life putting the day ahead of you into God's hands and say you know it doesn't matter what's going to happen to me as long as I know and I feel you are by my side. And this meditation, it's just a 
constant reminder to myself, if nothing else, that I'm going to seek you first, I'm going to make my first interaction with you, and only then, once I have created that bond with you in my meditation, then I will seek everything else, everybody else, but first, you. You are my priority. And that statement can be done daily through our meditation. So, so, so find that hour before you start your day where you are affirming this. God, I'm seeking your kingdom within me first and before anything else. For the thousandth time, I felt my burdens lifted in Master's presence. When we had finished our early lunch, he suggested that I return to the Panti. Does your friend Romesh Chandra Dutt still live in your boarding house? Yes, sir. Get in touch with him. The Lord will inspire him to help you with the examinations. Very well, sir, but Romesh is unusually busy. He is the honor man in our class and carries a heavier course than the others. Master waved aside my objections. Romesh will find time for you. Now go. I bicycled back to the Panthi. The first person I met in the boarding house compound was the scholarly Romesh. As though his days were quite free, he obligingly agreed to my diffident request. Of course, I am at your service. He spent several hours of that afternoon and of succeeding days in coaching me in my various subjects. I believe many questions in English literature will be centered in the root of Child Harold, he told me. We must get an atlas at once. A few classmates had gathered around to listen to the tutoring. Romesh is advising you wrongly, one of them commented to me at the end of our session. Usually only 50% of the questions are about the books. The other half will involve the author's lives. When I sat for the examination in English literature the following day, my first glance at the questions caused tears of gratitude to pour forth, wetting my paper. The classroom monitor came to my desk and made a sympathetic inquiry. My guru foretold that Romesh would help me. I explained, look, the very questions dictated to me by Romesh are here on the examination sheet. Fortunately for me, there are very few questions this year on English authors whose lives are wrapped in deep mystery so far as I am concerned. My boarding house was in an uproar when I returned. The boys who had been ridiculing Romesh's method of coaching looked at me in awe, almost deafening me with congratulations. During the week of the examinations, I spent many hours with Romesh, who formulated questions that he thought were likely to be set by the professors. Day by day, Romesh's questions appeared in almost the same form on the examination sheets. Amazing, isn't it? Just how deeply interested God is in all aspects of our lives. For him, it's not like, ah, examinations don't matter as long as, you know, you're there for me. Everything matters because everything's there for a purpose. Everything's there to teach us. And what's most important in this whole is Yogananda's... He's not a lazy person, you see. 
he's not here he's not shying away from the challenge he's not saying oh mujhe ko nahi karna hai ye please aasan kar do mere liye mm-hmm. and please just take it all away. i mean that's what we want you know <laughs> we that's how we would have loved this story to be and then what happened was the examinations just cancelled and never again were the examinations ever again on this land you know that's what we would like to see happen but that was not how yogananda he was like he was ready to put in hours of work his only thing why he didn't study was that because he had a greater love that's all not because studies are bad or something of that nature or they are i just dislike them he was willing to put out as much energy as he felt his guru asked of him in the moment his guru said do this no question no thought no resistance that's what i'm going to do put all my energy and effort into this and then god responds with grace you have to attract that grace you can't just kind of wait there holding your chunni and just kind of say throw you know a few paisa into it no you have to attract it with great power with a lot of energy with a great magnetism that you generate through the energy that you put out thinking over the examination in english literature i realized one morning that i had made a serious error one section of the questions had been divided into two parts of a or b and c or d instead of answering one question from each part i had carelessly answered both questions in group 1 and had failed to consider anything in group 2 the best mark i could score in that paper would be 33 three less than the passing mark of 36 i rushed to master to master and poured out my troubles sir i have made an unpardonable blunder i don't deserve the divine blessings through romesh i am quite unworthy i love these words not like oh please help me maine kya kar diya you know it's just like oh i can't believe i made this mistake you know i don't deserve these blessings i don't deserve all the stuff that the universe has had to completely change around in order to really tune into my needs i mean that's such a so much responsibility that he holds mm-hmm. you know it's not like oh please now can you do something about this because i did not pay attention and because you know how i am and you know, it's just like oh i made this thing and i'm so grateful that these blessings came but uh, just this careless uh, decision of mine makes me realize perhaps i'm not even worthy of these blessings cheer up mukunda shri yukteswar's tones were light and unconcerned <laughs> he pointed to the blue vault of the heavens it is more possible for the sun and moon to interchange their positions in space than it is for you to fail in getting your degree <laughs> when your guru says those words yeah, then you're like yeah. okay <laughs> that's as final as it can be <laughs> either the sun and the moon are going to change positions or you're going to pass your exams one of those two is going to happen i left the hermitage in a more tranquil mood though it seemed mathematically inconceivable that i could pass i looked once or twice apprehensively into the sky <laughs> the lord of day appeared to be securely anchored in his customary orbit as i reached the panthi i overheard a classmate's remark i have just learned that this year for the first time the required passing mark in english literature has been lowered i entered the boys room with such speed that he looked up in alarm i questioned him eagerly long haired monk he said laughingly why this sudden interest in scholastic matters why cry in the 11th hour 
But it is true that the passing mark has just been lowered to 33 points. A few joyous leaps took me into my own room where I sank to my knees and praised the mathematical perfections of my Divine Father. Every day I thrilled with the consciousness of a spiritual presence that I clearly felt to be guiding me through Romesh. A significant incident occurred in connection with the examination in Bengali. Romesh, who had touched little on the subject, called me back one morning as I was leaving the boarding house on my way to the examination hall. There is Romesh shouting for you, a classmate said to me impatiently. Don't return, we shall be late at the hall. Ignoring the advice, I ran back to the house. The Bengali examination is usually easily passed by our Bengali boys, Romesh told me. But I have just had a hunch that this year the professors have planned to massacre the students by asking questions from our ancient literature. My friend then briefly outlined two stories from the life of Vidya Sagar, a renowned philanthropist. I thanked Romesh and quickly bicycled to the college hall. The examination sheet in Bengali proved to contain two parts. The first instruction was, write two instances of the charities of Vidya Sagar. As I transferred to the paper the lore that I had so recently acquired, I whispered a few words of thanks, of thanksgiving that I heeded Romesh's last-minute summons. Had I been ignorant of Vidya Sagar's benefactions to mankind, I could not have passed the Bengali examination. Failing in one subject, I would have been forced to stand examinations anew in all subjects the following year. Such a prospect was understandably abhorrent. The second instruction on the sheet read, Write an essay in Bengali on the life of the man who has inspired you the most. Gentle reader, <laughs> that is us, <laughs> I need not inform you what man I chose for my theme. As I covered page after page with praise of my guru, I smiled to realize that my muttered prediction was coming true. I will fill up the sheets with your teachings. I had not felt inclined to question Romesh about my course in philosophy. Trusting my long training under Sri Yukteswar, I safely disregarded the textbook explanations. The highest mark given to any of my papers was the one in philosophy. My score in all other subjects was just barely within the passing mark. It is a pleasure to record that my unselfish friend, Romesh, received his own degree, cum laude. Father was wreathed in smiles at my graduation. I hardly thought you would pass, Mukunda, he confessed. You spend so much time with your guru. Master had indeed correctly detected the unspoken criticism of my father. For years, I had been uncertain that I would ever see the day when an A.B. would follow my name. I seldom used the title without reflecting that it was a divine gift conferred on me for reasons somewhat obscure. Occasionally, I hear college men remark that very little of their crammed knowledge remained with them after graduation. That admission consoles me a bit for my undoubted 
academic deficiencies. On the day I received my degree from Calcutta University, I knelt at my Guru's feet and thanked him for all the blessings flowing from his life into mine. Get up, Mukunda, he said indulgently. The Lord simply found it more convenient to make you a graduate than to rearrange the sun and the moon. Thus ends our chapter on I received my university degree. Now, of course, you can go and look into your own life and see what is it that you have to do and you have to fulfill. And perhaps there are certain aspects from this chapter you can pick up and say, ah, this is how I'm going to approach this process now. Whether I'm going to remove the I aspect from it, whether I'm going to put out a lot more energy, whether I'm going to very consciously seek first the kingdom of God and then allow all those other things to enter into my life. What particular strategy? There are like three or four strategies that Yogananda describes in this chapter. And you can choose now what strategy works best for you in anything that's difficult in your life, that seems like a burden, that seems like, oh, if only this didn't exist. And see how you can fulfill that karma, fulfill that dharma as well and include it in your search for God. I like the, I like the fact that most of these studies and passing these exams was really to satisfy Yogananda's father. You know, it was like a very deep-seated fear that his father had that his son was giving his life to God and, you know, forgetting all the responsibilities of what he, wo uh, he thought worth of fulfilling. And the beautiful thing about this, the moment Yogananda passes his exam and shares this with his father, Suddenly, you can see here in that little exchange, his father has a deeper appreciation for what his son has chosen. Because he sees that he was able to fulfill uh, the Dharma, and in this case, the, um, the college that he signed up for. So made me realize every time I do something for someone who is not necessarily in favor of the path I have chosen, and I do something nice for that person, or I go uh, a bit away from my out of my way out of my way to just make him feel a bit happier or more comfortable. Or, or something that uplifts his energy, that person automatically respects more the chosen, uh, the path that I have chosen, or, or perhaps a greater appreciation for the life that I'm living. And rather than criticize the life that I have chosen, living in an ashram and dedicating my life to God, somehow you, you kind of almost live a veil in their consciousness and they think, hmm, well, this actually is a very nice person and that changes their approach even to spirituality because sometimes Surya and I can feel certain people, ah, these, you know, spiritual people, they don't know what it means to live, you know, in life or what it means to whatever, no? But once they see through our actions and the way we deal with practical things in life, they, they really mm, 
almost respect even more uh, a life dedicated to God. So find ways in your life where you can let people know that living a life for God is one of the greatest joys and it really means include them also in that joy and you would see like bit by bit they will respect you more they will even give you some time even more time so you can practice the things that are really fulfilling your heart so don't don't if you have an opportunity to serve someone that is specifically against of the things that you have chosen and you are doing i would say just do something a bit more special and let him know through your actions that this is the attitude that comes when you are in connection with God, with your Guru and with the path that you have chosen. I'm reminded of a very little funny incident but not particularly. It was when we took uh, a year of seclusion mm. in Spain and we had rented a, a house somewhere and you know, we just moved into this house to spend our year of seclusion and we had these neighbors and these neighbors kind of asked us, you know, what do you guys do? And we were explaining and they were so, they were like, Shocked. but you're so good looking and so young. Why would you give your life to God? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they just couldn't make this. They, were like, they couldn't understand. Like, <laughs> Why you would you give your life? You're so good looking yeah. and you're, you're so young. You, should be, you shouldn't be doing this thing. You should be partying. You should be drinking. You should have, you know... So, of course, they were completely confused and they couldn't relate to us at all. But in that year, every now and then, you know, we'd smile at them, we'd we do something, them. we'd invite them over, come. And it was only later that we learned that, you know, they had lost their son to a suicide just very recently. A young boy in his, perhaps he was our age. And I don't know what happened, but in that exchange, whatever little exchange we had with them, it was... I think they had some sort of a healing through it or some sort of a something, some aspect, some deep grief in their life got lifted. I remember they would, you know, because of that grief, they were drinking a lot even during the day. It was just, what else do they do? They have to drown their sorrows in some way. And before we were leaving and all, you could just see that so much had shifted in their lives. Not because we had told them about God or we had explained to them some magical, you know, formula. Or... In fact, we hardly spoke about... Mm -hmm. Just being really next to we them, just kind of waving at them when every we were day, in the garden yeah. every day. I mean, these things go a long way. Vibration is really so much more powerful than words or teachings or concepts. They are still asking about us. My aunt says, you know, they are always asking, when are you guys coming back to Spain? And they would like to see you again and have you as neighbors. So, you know, you never know. You never know. Like right now, this couple only by the very thought of us uplift them and it's not about us really it's the vibration that was flowing through us that can flow through you and you can you know exchange that vibration vibration and make a permanent effect in somebody else's life so even that has a power so if you can become this is what it means to become a channel mm. for the light in this world it's not about just talking about the teachings perfectly it's not about having it having everything right in your life it's just by you know relating to other people where they are and just giving them a little bit of whatever you have tasted in your life and just offer that 
and, and, and use that as the greatest tool that right now God is giving you and, and you'll be amazed how much you know we can change the world. Anyway, just thought <laughs> to share that on a little more practical, you know, sometimes these concepts may seem like they're only concepts, but they're not. Because mm -hmm. you get to actually live them, you get to experience them in your life and then it makes a lot more sense when you read about them, you know, anew and afresh. So anyway, go find your own way <laughs> to change the world. Go find your own way to be a channel for these great and amazing vibrations of our masters. Have a fabulous day and 